Welcome to Plastics Unwrapped, a series supported by Dow, the material science company. I'm your host, Maitreyi Raman. In this podcast, we're on the hunt for solutions to some of the toughest challenges facing the plastics industry. I'll be joined by my producer, Lisa Desai. Hey, everyone. She's the woman with all the facts and figures we're going to be talking about. We're going to try and have some seriously honest conversations with guests from across sectors and from across the world. So let's together figure out what it'll really take to save the future of our planet. It's the throwaway nature of our society which is the problem. And again, you can't blame the material for that. You blame us human beings and the way we have become so lazy and reliant on this convenience. And where better to start than designing plastics for a sustainable future? Let's blame the designers because, frankly, they made plastics an integral part of our lives. It really all started as a story of making organic products like ivory combs and ivory jewelry boxes accessible to this new emerging middle class that was coming out of the Industrial Revolution with something that was also new, something that was semi-synthetic, so think organic and synthetics combined. And that was created by an American inventor called John Hyatt in 1869. And then came the synthetics. So further inventions like Bakelite in 1907, we had plexiglass in 1933, and nylon in 1935. All of that led to a rainbow of materials for everything from toys to jewelry. And plastics only became an industry around the 30s. That was all driven by the need to fill material gaps that were left by the First World War. So think nylon to replace silk in stockings, for example. And then came the Second World War, right, Lisa? And that led to more material shortages. It did. It led to plastics being used in cars, fridges, a whole bunch of products, smaller mass-produced plastic objects like cameras and radios. So what happened after the war, Lisa? Well, in the 50s, Italian design really propelled plastics into our homes with more modern aesthetics, so designer furniture and homeware. Then there was the oil crisis of the 70s, and that meant plastics became really hard to make, and the world also became a lot more aware of its life cycle and, you know, all the end-of-use issues that come with it. But use won out in the end, and between the 70s and the 2000s, plastic really became central to our lives. But it was really only in the 90s when recycled plastic designs made their debut. And now knowing that really a lack of plan for end use is no longer possible, I'm finding that designers are really focusing on these circularity models to give designs a new lease on life. So who better to give us insight on the design thinking that's going on in that world to drive that change than Tony Chambers? He basically did set the tone for all our design aesthetics since the 1990s, first as the art director of GQ and then as editor-in-chief of Wallpaper magazine, where I must say he still contributes. Though nowadays, you'll probably find Tony knee-deep in the design world through his creative agency, TC and Friends. Tony Chambers, welcome to the show. I am so happy to have you here. Very happy to be here too, my three. So since you are to the design world, what Anna Wintour is to fashion, let's start off by asking you, how do you feel about the material called plastics, which was every designer's favorite material, the hero of the design world from the 50s to maybe the early 2000s? Very good way of describing plastics because it was definitely a hero material. 
before my time, I hasten to add, the 1950s. but Way before. Way before. But as a, um, a good historian, as well as a practitioner and consultant in design, I know my history. And yes, it welcomed in and was a catalyst to a completely new and exciting, futuristic, progressive way for designers and manufacturers and consumers to really appreciate and push forward what is possible in designing and the making of products. And, you know, it is synonymous with modernity, mid-century modern, of course, and optimism, which is, yes, ironic now when it is a perceived as a divisive material. Um, and optimism would probably not be a word used to describe plastic these days. Although I personally am optimistic about how we can reinvent because designers, human beings generally, but designers more so, that is the key skill of rethinking, solving problems and reinventing things. And you can never blame one thing or one person. It's not alone. And I think to throw the baby out with the bathwater is crazy. And I think the dust is settling now where we are beginning to rethink things and not just say this is 100% problematic, but it's possibly how things are used and how things are misused is the problem. Well, it comes down to circularity and sustainability, which I know you're very passionate about. And within the design world, you talk a lot about it. This is also the man, folks, who introduced me to the concept of design and design thinking, which connects into business and business strategy thinking. You made me think about business in a very, very different way. Could you do that for our audience? How do the two connect well, in terms of um, how important design is to business, I've always thought that in certain areas and, and for some time, there's been a misconception that design is really just about making things look pretty and maybe selling, helping things to communicate, yes, which is important. But designers are brought in at the final stage. I think some business people still think this to their peril, um, whereas really designers and design is really oils the wheels of business in that if you bring designers and design thinking into the process earlier on, you are certainly going to have a better product, a better message, whatever your area of business is. And I think many businesses have been catching up to that in the last 10 years. I think we have to thank Apple for that. And um, without question, it is perceived by everybody, understood that it is a design-led product then subsequently became one of the most successful, if not the most successful, modern business. We need to know a bit more about this mysterious design thing. So the design thinking as a way of communicating how design can work is a way that one does communicate the fact that design is not just about making something blue or pink or a circle or a square. It's much more about making things work from the very starting point to the end point. So when you start thinking about circularity, and I know in the plastics industry they're talking about circularity, recycling has popped up a hundred times. They're grappling with being the most visible in terms of climate change activism and being also perceived as not doing enough, rightly so sometimes. How does design help them rethink at this point of change? Everyone wants to change, but they are stuck with the lack of infrastructure. How can design help them do that? Of course, they're not doing enough. Nobody's doing enough. We all need to do more and we should all do more and be conscious of it and be responsible of it. But design, again, going back to the point of stop being there at the beginning and being there through the journey and to the end, design can help in all those ways. And I think you're right, infrastructure is the key to this, to this problem. 
Everybody is willing. Everybody wants to put different waste into different appropriate bins, but it's how it gets from there to the recycling uh, process. And often, of course, recycling is in the short term not actually necessarily more beneficial. A lot more energy is used in the recycling process, but we're getting there. One has to keep doing it to keep improving, to get to a stage where recycling is definitely a viable option. But with plastics, of course, it's designers again and good relationships with manufacturers should be striving to make products that last, if not forever, as close to forever as we possibly can. And I think some of the great designers and manufacturers in the past and present have done that. It's the throwaway nature of our society which is the problem. And again, you can't blame the material for that. You blame us human beings and the way we have become so lazy and reliant on this convenience If it's convenience stood for um, success, it stood for modernity, like you said. You suddenly had calendars made of colourful plastic, which could light up a room in the middle of um, coming out of a, a Second World War. Those kind of designs, did it exacerbate our consumerism? Or do you think that we just loved what we saw, a little bit of happiness, a little bit of colour, and then it just blew out of proportion and it's human behaviour that has to change? Yeah, everything contributes to things going one direction or another. I wouldn't say it in itself was the primary reason for this. No, a contributing reason. It's a contributing reason, but I think it's more, it's the greed um, of all human beings and big business has to face up to this, uh, continual strive for more, more, more and growth, growth, growth. And I think it in itself, we do have to progress. Innovation is important. Convenience, we all enjoy that to a certain degree or it becomes to a degree where you become intoxicated with it and uh, addicted to just this convenience and speed when really we don't need it. Um, we need to just slow down a little bit and just appreciate what we have. Um, but of course designers also, as well as being, I think, hopefully contributing to solving these problems, have caused the problems as well. My area of expertise, trained in and, and still love, is communication design, graphic design, advertising. And of course, I think when you look back, the misuse of our skills to promote and convince people to buy things they don't need is, um, well, it's naughty. Um, it's naughty. It is very naughty. Designers are naughty as well as being good. Potential to be very good, potential to be very naughty. That was, I think, the biggest contributor and potentially still is. And this manipulation, of course, it's accelerated even more now with, as we all know, the incredibly smart but dangerous manipulation of digital communication tools were we are really being convinced and persuaded to buy things we really don't need. So many things we don't need. So it really comes down to designing for longevity, designing for circularity. Are there some examples that really stand out for you at this point where those of us who want to pair back and be a little bit more careful can focus on saying, okay, this is the work that's happening. These are the innovations happening in the design world. So one example of a furniture company an American furniture company called Emico. Check them out if you don't know them. They are a company that originally produced the Navy chair. It was a chair for the US Navy. So aluminium is robust, strong, 
but very lightweight, which of course is important, and the sea. And a very, very simple and elegant design that would weather the conditions at sea, weather the conditions of burly naval folk. Yeah. <laughs> and would also be very light. A gentleman called Greg Bookbinder bought the company and has changed the company and broadened its product range and worked with very intelligent designers, such as Philip Stark early on, to diversify the product range, but use recyclable plastics. And this is, in a, in a sense, it's a perfect example of manufacturing ingenuity and entrepreneurship and intelligent designers. Collaborations with Coca-Cola actually produce that chair, but in a recycled plastic. Again, this is a number of years ago, so early days of this innovation, but subsequently has gone on to make other products where longevity is paramount. I remember him saying that his wife came up with a phrase for his company, which was... Um, Sell a chair, lose a customer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the way we should be thinking, I'm guessing, at this point. How long can you keep it in the system and how quickly can you bring it back? You've worked with Philip Stark. This is a man who stands as an epitome of industrial design. What is his mindset like when he goes in and works with a material that is so, so very toxic in public life, but then everybody loves to use. It's, I, I call it the material we love to hate, but love to use. That's a very good way of putting it. Stark is really, really interesting, actually, because he could, be, and he does, he's in a big moment of self-reflection and realised that at the beginning of his career, and kind of at the peak, because he had a meteoric rise, he's so smart, and an entrepreneur and a great businessman, he produced so much design product that he now looks back on and says, is worthless. We didn't need it. He contributed so much to the problems. Or he is one of the people that was part of this consumer boom in the, we're talking with him more than 1970s, 80s and onwards. So he's really had a moment of reflection where he has changed and is doing as much as he can now to only design responsibly to give back in a sense. He's still a businessman and a designer that works commercially and industrially, but he really does reflect on the fact that we were not really aware of the damage that we were doing back then. So he is working most companies, if not all, now he acts as more in this responsible way. And as any very intelligent person, one can work in that way and address problems and, and readdress things. So he's working with Cartel, actually his initials and Cartel were the plastics design company. Absolutely. 100% plastics, proud and created incredible work. Look at the back catalogue and work that does last. So it's not throw away a bull. If anyone listening doesn't know the company Cartel, Google it. These are the folks who after World War II created these amazing chairs that now are copied and you can get versions of them, I should say, in even places, I will leave them unnamed, but in more accessible ways. But these are very iconic furniture pieces. Just Google them. You'll love them. And you'll understand why they were so iconic. Sorry, Tony. That's okay. And they do they do last because good design should last. It's one of the key definitions of what good design should be. It should not have inbuilt obsolescence. But they've addressed the issues at hands in the last number of years. And they're using different materials to plastic, but they're also using recycled plastics. And with a designer as experienced and as knowledgeable and as intelligent and smart as Philip Stark, and there are many others, other brands are available. Um, <laughs> this is not an ad for Philip. I know. This is, um, honestly, I'm not, I'm not on his payroll. Feel free to name others. <laughs> yes. Um, 
They are the people who can, they have the experience and they know they are immersed in materiality, because all designers are. So they can address these problems and solve them. The key thing is, what I often say is that, you know, we are human beings, we like beautiful things and we have a creative drive. What differentiates us from different species, different animals, is that we do make things for pleasure. Um, And we can't deny that of ourselves. So we can't be too fundamentalist in our drive to save the planet or prevent the planet from being destroyed by ourselves. We have to be realistic that we still require beautiful things. We just have to be more responsible in the making and the manufacturing of these beautiful things we're designing. You speak to pretty much everyone in the design community. You consult, you write, you talk, you have your own design studio. All of these things combined, when you look at a designer's responsibility or a company's responsibility, as many would say, it is the company's responsibility. You're creating it. On the other hand, you're saying it's also our responsibility and how we consume it. Who do you think has responsibility of taking the materials back? Because we love beautiful things, but we get bored of them at some point. Yeah, I think certainly manufacturers now, they have to be more responsible for the end point of the thing that they produce. I think that's becoming more evident and more companies are. They are taking that on board. Governments and uh, policymakers have to put pressure on to do this and consumers also have to consider it as well. Of course, repair is a very key thing now that again, yes, not only the death of the product has to be responsibly considered, but also just extending the life of anything by providing repair. So the other company I was going to mention, which isn't necessarily plastic, well, it isn't plastic, is a German-British company, Vizzo, Vizzo Shelving, predominantly shelving, but they make other products as well, but they're most renowned for the shelving. Designed by Dieter Rams, the great German uh, product designer, still alive, still with us. And that is a product, the repair side reminded me, that is a product that lasts forever, more than a generation, two generations, because built into its design, it's not just that it's a well-made, well-functioning shelving system. Everything about the company, a wonderful man called Mark Adams, who runs it now, is considered that you can take it apart, take it with you. When you move house, you take that with you. They have a repair program. The guys from Vizzo will build it for you, take it down for you, fix it if there's anything wrong with it. All the elements that make this product makes you love it even more. So you love it anyway because it's beautiful and so exquisitely designed and functions so well, looks great. But it's so well designed from its conception design to the next three or four generations. It's amazing. Now, again, you might think buy a shelf, lose a customer, um, but somehow they're they're managed because you love it so much, you just buy more. And you think, well, I'm not going to buy another system because it's the best. So I think they have nailed it in terms of responsible, sustainable design with longevity, but their audience is continuing to grow. It's... It's like a magic sauce. Yes. It is a magic sauce where you're creating a design that people fall in love with and hopefully even appreciates in value. I mean, the Eames chair always stands out for me as an example of what could have been considered just a chair when it was created. And then it's become iconic. I can't afford one. I have a replica, but it's all... Sacrilege. Sacrilege, but... Again, you go for the cheaper option. It's always there. So I wanted to ask you, in terms of the history of plastics, 
when we first found it, it was organic. Then it became semi-organic. Then it became completely inorganic. Do you think that had anything to do with its design usage or did design follow the material at that point with plastics? I think both the obvious design properties or the potential to be able to make particular form and things to be both beautiful. I mean, we think of Bakelite as one of the earliest designer usages of it. And that's a material that looked like a natural material, felt like a natural material, but obviously was far more economic and more robust and could be used in many, many different usages. So I think its design properties were the thing that catapulted its popularity. So the reason I ask this is because for some reason it seems like things that were only for the rich in those days suddenly became accessible for the middle class and the folks who just couldn't afford stuff like combs and clips and, you know, things like that. And suddenly you had accessibility. Did it exacerbate our want and need saying suddenly we can afford what the rich have in ivory? but we can afford it in plastic. Yeah, so billiard balls was also one of the first usages I read recently or was reminded of. Before that was ivory. So actually, there is plastic (laughs) being seen as a good product and a product that is saving a certain section of the planet and the world in that it's preventing the use of ivory or, or reducing the need for ivory. So it's sort of a hero product there, which again is an irony how it, how it's perceived now, but it's democratic as well. It's it was more economic. It's um, it's all the things that are very very positive, which again is reflective of the moment, post industrial revolution, more things being available for more people. It's a very very positive message, and uh, then accelerated in the mid century to allow people to have beautiful and useful design. We just don't want it to land up on our seashores and no, in that's landfills. Where it, exactly. That's where the problems arise, which again is more to do with our misuse than the um, material itself. It's to do with the irresponsible usage of it and perhaps the greed of certain manufacturers to make more things cheaply, therefore increase profits without really considering um, the end game. Tony, in some parts of the world, we still are using plastic as we did in the West as an arbiter of safety, of quality, of packaging, that if it doesn't come wrapped in plastic, it's either tainted, must have got damaged in transit. Some places in Asia, you still need to, for example, wrap things in plastic if you're shipping it out because paper just is not acceptable as enough protection. Is that going to be an issue for trying to bring circularity into the model? Because this is all single-use plastic at the end of the day. No, it's a huge issue. And I am... It's perception, as you say. It's, it's an educational thing that will take time. But if those perceptions are there and ingrained, yeah, one can't just click one's fingers and expect people to change their perceptions that it is okay if it's not protected, let's say, is the right word, I suppose, because it does have protective qualities, of course. Even in the food industry and supermarkets, there's, okay, here's an argument, devil's advocate argument, really, that some vegetables, if they are wrapped in plastic, it 
does prolong their life on the shelf. And without it, that food would become inedible and be thrown away. So there's a very delicate balance, isn't there, between... It's very delicate because I'm going to leave the grocery store chain unnamed, but one of them tried to move their meat packaging, if I remember, into vacuum packaging to reduce their plastic usage. And the outcry from consumers was massive, and it was about the meat just not tasting right. Yes. And these are the same consumers who had asked that particular grocery chain to reduce their plastic use. How do you as a business then address your need and want? How do you design a product packaging that works to meet both? Well, that requires dialogue and collaboration, doesn't it, between different manufacturers to all do it at once and then there is no alternative. As long as it's not detrimentally affect the quality of food, then, yeah, I think it's collective minds, isn't it, where you get together and say, this is clearly going to be better for the planet, but we all have to do it at once. Is that ever going to happen? No. No, no. <laughs> I don't think so. We can start with perception change. Yeah, How's that? Absolutely no. Perception change and coming back to then design and design thinking, a lot of that perception, changing people's perceptions for the better as opposed for the worst, as many advertising gurus did, in terms of persuading people to buy things they don't need. Let's use our skills, our design and communication skills to re-educate or educate perception in the other way. And I think it's... That is a better use of designer skills. That is a good way of topping and tailing it. There you have it. That's the last word from the man who is described as the ultimate arbiter of taste of the design world. Tony Chambers, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Maitri. That brings us to the end of part one of Design Thinking Plastics for Sustainability. Join me in the next episode for part two of our deep dive, where we're going to look at how big and small businesses and designers are putting that design thinking into action. The designers are having to learn how you design a product that is bulletproof for the future. Thanks for sticking with us to the end as we hunt for solutions to make plastics truly circular. This podcast is supported by Dow, the material science company. Don't forget to share the show if you enjoyed it. Do leave us a comment or a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.